If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Our guest today is Associate Professor of American Studies, Psyche Williams Forson. She is an author and a friend, and I am delighted to have her join us today on the phone. Psyche, thank you for coming on the show. Fred, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Many of the people I have on my show are people who are colleagues and friends like yourself, and I don't always know their backstory. So in many ways, this interview is selfish because I'm just a curious person. And I want to ask you, what is the oldest thing you know about your family history on either side of your family? I know my great-grandmother on my mother's side. I grew up in the north, actually, in, in upstate New York, but would come back to the south on a regular basis. And we would come, go to my great-grandmother's house. Many of them were sharecroppers. So they were sharecroppers. Many of them went on to acquire the land that they were sharecropping on and so ended up owning many acres, which are still considered the homestead for, for those on my, on my mother's side. We are from um, South Central Virginia, just about an hour south of Richmond. Appomattox is west of us. We're north of Lynchburg. So we're right in the middle of the heart of Virginia. Both sides of the family are from Virginia. Different sides of the tracks, if you will, which provides its own interesting stories. Another project that I hope to capitalize on at some point, talk about how my grandmother and grandparents on my mom's side were bootleggers. My grandmother, you know, did other things in order to provide for the family, part of it working part of the underground economy. And I'm really fascinated about that because W.E.B. Du Bois is the author of The Philadelphia Negro, but a lot of people don't know that one of the studies he did prior to Philadelphia was Prince Edward County or Farmville, Virginia. He did a study there where he looked at, you know, the economic conditions and all, but in going back to take a look at that study, I don't think he delved as deeply into the underground economy and so the role of women in creating a substantive economy out of food and food stuff, as I said, bootlegging and, and, and so forth. And, and I'm curious as to what different statistics might be gained if we go back and look at those economies that were not considered legitimate. So you said you grew up in upstate New York. What part? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I was there from the time I was a young girl until I'd say just around high school. We all moved back to Farmville. Spent quite a bit of time in Toronto, Niagara Falls, you know, Syracuse, the real upstate parts of New York where the snow is deep and, mm. and never ceasing, you know. So it was quite a change to come back to Virginia, mm. as you can imagine. So did you graduate from high school in Buffalo or in Virginia? No, I, I did my high school years in Farmville. Any extracurricular 
activities did you do in high school? Debate in the band and played basketball, statisticians for baseball, for basketball, for the guys' team when I was in my off season. Pretty active. Where did you go to undergrad and how did you make the decision to go there? What were the what were your final choices and where did you end up going and why? I applied to UVA early decision and I was admitted. And when my parents and I went to visitation weekend, I said to them, This is where I'm going. And so I applied one place and got admitted. UVA really felt right to me. All of my second year, I, as I was taking the requirements for the commerce, I pretty much failed everything. Econ, statistics, Latin, and accounting. The only course that I was taking that I really liked was English Lit. Many, many years later, I realized I liked the, the historical elements of the school, the landscape. I found the narrative of Thomas Jefferson very troubling and problematic. But I liked the historical elements spoke to me early on, and I didn't really realize that that's what was happening. I ended up changing my major to English and African American studies with an emphasis in women's studies. Two professors who really changed the course of my life. One is Dr. Joy Bolton, who's now a Amber. She taught African history, and I took a course from her in African women's history read a lot of literature. Some of the readings that we did in her class and the cultural history and the background that she provided gave me what is now my start in cultural studies. And then the other professor who was absolutely germane to helping me think through issues of black women's studies and uh, African-American studies is Dr. Father Joseph Brown, who is now out at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. Both of them had a profound shaping in my early way of thinking about the world. I remember Father Brown said to me, I like what you're doing. I want you to read more Audre Lorde and less Intizaki Shante, even though Intizaki's work was fabulous. But he wanted me to get a, a very broad understanding of black women's complexity using language. And I, I fully appreciate that. Clearly, it, it was resounding because I still remember it almost four decades later. Dr. Vanessa Saunders, all of whom, interestingly, since I've been in the academy, I have reached out to them or they've reached out to me. I reached out to Dr. Saunders. And I now have a different appreciation for her and the very precarious situation she was in at UVA when I was there as a student because she was an assistant professor. And we know the lives of assistant professors, right? Mm -hmm. Then you don't really, of course you have no clue. You're just, you're a student. You don't understand. But the life pressures that she was experiencing along with her own tenuous career situation probably lent itself to why we had some of the experiences that we did. If you were going to create a required course for students graduating from school. What do you think are essential things a college student should know? Wow, that's, that's a great question, Fred. Let me think about that for a nanosecond. Um, I, I think I would absolutely teach 
this generation how to effectively manage their lives using the internet, their histories. So much of what we do, all of us do, is, is, is media operated today. And, and yet it, it, there's so many more capabilities. So as they go out into the world and as they ground themselves and are learning who they are, what can you find out about yourself daily just from the websites you visit, from the, the apps that you may sign up for, and, and the ways that you navigate the web? I'm not talking just in terms of social media, but I'm just talking about the ways in which you interface online and the information that you can get and what it can tell you about your life and where you need to go and save you so much time if you take the time to do some planning and research beforehand. And so really what I'm teaching is, is a set of research skills, but I'm doing it using the contemporariness of their lives. Everything from jobs to banking to places to live to how to navigate, looking for spaces to live, to how to read subtext of places and opportunities and things, how do you read into those, you know, all the things we sort of learn life in a very different way and often a hard way. It's not going to stop them necessarily from learning the hard way, but it will hopefully equip them with some, some ways that they can tease out, how do I really want to understand what is happening? I mean, because young people today, I don't think, realize when we came through, we were doing hard-nosed, in the archive, grinding out the time, the energy to just dig through. And I find that with my students, often I'll ask them, well, did you look up X, Y, and Z? And, you know, they'll look at me dumbfounded. Why wouldn't you have just Googled that? And it's like they don't think that the phone is actually a resource and a computer and there for their engagement beyond what they might find on Twitter, Facebook, how did you and your parents pay for your undergraduate degree? Back in the 80s, because I applied early decision, I had a very interesting experience at UVA. My undergraduate career was actually paid for from the various financial aid and work study and things of that nature. And I remember coming out of the financial aid office when my parents and I went and they dropped me off and, and finding out that I was actually going to get back like $600, which seemed like $6,000, mm -hmm. you know, at the time. And I was really overjoyed because both my sisters went to HBCUs and they also were private. So my joy was really more about my mom not having to deal with that particular stress for, around me. But, the, but I worked. I worked at Burger King. I did little research projects one summer. I worked three jobs. I, I worked at a Christian bookstore. I was an RA, a resident assistant, and, you know, I wrote tickets. Walked around and wrote tickets back in the day. You hustled, and, and that's what I did. Um, I did that all the way through grad school. Went from job to job, teaching at different institutions, especially over the summer. So, mm. But for my undergrad, cobbled together a couple of different things, working financial aid and work and lived on campus. And then my final year, I was a, I was a resident assistant, so that helped with low cost. What was your first job after college? And do you remember what you got paid back then? I actually did 
very much a, a on-campus leader and part one of the you know members of the Black Leadership Forum or whatever on our campus. But when I graduated, I, I had no job, and I had had a lot of different interviews, but they were not successful. And this is what has actually ultimately shaped who I am today as a scholar and the way in which I see education. So I ended up without a job, unlike many of my friends and peers, and it really put me in a, a depressive state of mind. So you see your friends and your peers going off doing their thing, and, and you're like, so what are you going to do? And I had absolutely no idea. And so I ended up going back home to Farmville, and I remember feeling very weird about it because I'm like, I, I went to a really good school, I should have a job. I ended up getting hired onto a grant project, but before that, I I, I did I was an adjunct at a community college, at the local community college, and I worked at a radio station. So I was making peanuts, um, like maybe a hundred and eighty-nine dollars every two weeks. It was really minimal. I then ended up applying for a job at the local university, Longwood University. Did not get hired. And the second year was invited to apply for the same position again, and I did, and was successful and ended up being a resident director and an assistant director of housing. And I did it for a year and then took a similar position at up in Connecticut, and I was up there for two years. But while I was there, I also had a community college fellowship where I was teaching at a local community college again. And a lot of students were coming to me for assistance with their papers and helping them to think through ideas. And I remember sitting and saying, you know, I can't, I can't really help people anymore because I don't know anything. So I probably should go to grad school. So that's what happened. I, I ended up applying to graduate school back here. I wanted to be back close to my family because, you know, my nieces and nephews were being born and I was missing out on substantial life events in my family. I applied back here in the DMV, DC metro area, and I didn't get into any of those schools. I applied to both MA programs and PhD programs. And I remember thinking, with Maryland, I was very excited about the possibility, and I had heard of this thing called American Studies. And I was excited about the possibility, but I didn't get admitted. So I got on a train and came down, because again, I still have that hustle mentality embedded in me through my mom and, you know, to, to some extent my dad as an activist, but my mom as, as a, you know, hustling to do different things to keep us exposed. And so I came down and I said, you know, we had a long talk. I, I talked with the director of graduate studies, the chairs, and a couple of weeks later, I got an admin letter. And it's fascinating because now I'm chair of that department. All a part of the cycle of life and timing and the seasons of life, and I ended up coming to Maryland for graduate school. Both my MA and then PhD came about because that wasn't my plan. PhD wasn't my plan. But along the way, I decided maybe I should keep going. Now, I ended up being the first in my family to get a PhD. Both my sisters, you know, have advanced degrees as well. It's been a very circuitous and circular route. Mm -hmm. Not at all straightforward, not at all planned the way I probably had it in my head, which is a good thing. And so, yeah, that's, that's what happened. We're going to take a commercial break. 
This is The Fred Opie Show. Visit our website at fredopie.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. I live by the mantras, agents of positive change focus their energy on learning. Learners are earners, and we are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Purchase a great book, audiobook, or CD during our fantastic $10.99 or less limited time offer sale. We have slashed the price on my Zona Hurston biography and on Southern Food and Civil Rights, the history of the role of food and U.S. movements from the Great Depression to Occupy Wall Street. Cook and bake the related historic recipes in the pages of these riveting food history books. Read my sports autobiography and self-improvement book, Start With Your Gift, and my latest book, Super 7, and learn how to be more creative and productive. These and other great books, audiobooks, and CDs, all for $10.99 or less while supplies last. And here's some even better news. If you spend $30 or more, we're going to give you a free CD and ship your order for free. All orders will ship in 48 hours because we want you to get these resources as soon as possible. Go to our online store at fredopiespeaks.com and order now. Be a difference maker. Use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. What's something you thought about being a professor, a college professor, that once you got into the career, you look back and said, man, I had that all wrong. <laughs> because I never planned this route at all, as I look back and thought that I was going to be going into marketing mm. and commerce, mm. <laughs> and I ended up in history and cultural studies. Yeah, I think that would be the look back. I definitely had it all wrong. I am for better or for worse, more or less, a family historian, and I never expected to be the transmitter of those narratives. That wasn't what I thought my I was tapped to be. But it is. At what point did you realize, wait a minute, I'm a gifted storyteller, historian, writer, documentary, recorder of, of culture. At what point did you said, ooh, like me, I, I know I'm a teacher, and I and it was there a long time ago, but it was only decades later I realized that's my gift. When did you recognize your gift and embrace it? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think I went into it kicking and screaming. It was like a family thing where we have videos and we have pictures, and somehow they ended up in my possession, and my dad was always the family supporter. He literally, growing up, everybody had to be recorded. Every incident, every event we did, he's on video, he's on film. And over time, I've transferred them from VHS, from, you know, 16 millimeters mm-hmm. to VHS, and now to CDs, and of course, we now need to get ready to move to the next platform. My mom celebrated her 80th birthday last spring, and I realized all my sisters and me, all storytellers because mm. we, we grew up in storytelling households so as one of us started telling a remembrance of, of my mom or whatever the other one jumped in 
and then the other one jumps in. So we're all storytellers in one way or the other. Mine, perhaps, are more documented than, than my sisters, although they, too, are published. At some point, you, you stop running from your gift, and, and like you said, you embraced it. And I think that was right around in the midst of working on the dissertation. I realized that there were a lot of stories in my life that had salience and relevance to the very thing I was writing about in building houses, building houses out of chicken legs. I didn't know it at the time that while I was having those experiences, and I didn't know, I never planned for them to be in the book, but as I was writing, I'm like, oh, you remember that this thing happened, and I'm like, and that thing happened. So, and, and again, when we were coming through grad school, we had always heard you couldn't, you could not use your own life experience. I was literally in the 19th hour of writing the dissertation and including so much of my life that my advisor said, you need to go back and talk to one of your committee members who had sort of written one of the definitive texts on self-ethnography, because what you're doing is self-ethnography. And it was so undervalued and so not privileged. And she's a historian, and I remember her saying to me, I'm uncomfortable with all of this self-ethnography and all of this literature that you have in your dissertation. But you know, I, I said, but, but this is, these are the stories I have to tell, so I have to leave it. And so it was a time that nowadays, you know, you may not think twice about it, but back then, it was very much a challenge for me to include those elements in the project. And yet, I knew that they made absolute sense to what it was I was trying to say. So I asked a set of rapid uh, response questions to my guests just to learn a little bit more about their life, and we'll start off with this one. Give me a hero, a hardship, and a highlight you've had in your life. Well, a hero to my mom. I learned my whole educational ethic from my mother who had three small children, young girls, and would take us to school with her as she was completing her undergraduate, um, well into her late 20s, early 30s, and she would cart us off to, to class with her at UB. University of Buffalo. So she's my hero. A hardship, I've talked a little bit about it. My first experience with real depression, thankfully I don't I don't live with long-term depression, but I do recall going through a period of time where I was immensely depression. That was right after I graduated from undergrad. And then a highlight would be finding out that my book has been received by so many community groups especially older black women who could see themselves in my work and told me that. I never expected building houses out of chicken legs, black women food empowered to go anywhere near where it has gone and to still even be discussed today. I'm thankful, I'm humbled, I'm grateful, and I just find that I want to continue to tell the stories of of black people, of black lives, and especially of black women, visible and invisible. I love that answer. Dinner with three people, dead or alive, what three people would you want to have dinner with and why these three? Dora, Neil Hurston, absolutely. Storyteller extraordinaire of the folk. I would want to absolutely sit at her feet. My great-grandmother, whose life I don't know enough about, but who smoked a pipe and wore an ill-fitting wig, and I know she has stories to tell. 
And I wish I could have learned those stories and, and heard more about them from her. And Pauline Hopkins, 19th century reformer, who absolutely took notes from anybody, um, or so it seems. She's the author of Contending Forces, and she was writing at the turn of last century about class, about race, sexuality, about women and men. And most of all, she wrote about things and what those things meant to black people. And it's her work that started me on this journey that I'm on, looking both at food, but also the larger material lives of, of black people. How have your eating habits, drinking habits, and fitness habits changed since that freshman year at UVA? Oh my gosh, how have most those habits changed? Through my study of food, my exposure to lots of different food communities has absolutely increased. You and I have had opportunities to have Thai food in Indiana and probably elsewhere, right? That was one of the first times we met. So an appreciation for a, a wide palette, I would say has absolutely been a hallmark of, of this work in food studies, like being a part of the founding of the Southern Foodways Alliance and the various ways in which Southern food gets parsed out. So I would say that's one way. Another way has changed because Time and time again, I go in and out of, I eat meat, I don't eat meat, I <laughs> don't eat fish. I have not eaten pork in over 40 years, for sure, so I haven't changed with that. You have those experiences where one time you eat something and you may have not eaten the right thing, mm -hmm. and so now you, so I would never go back. In terms of fitness habits, I think fitness is a way of life for me. I'm not as committed to the workout because I'm juggling so many different things trying to figure out, should I sleep or should I get up and work out? Those kinds of deliberations, how I try to manage my time, my stress, what I say yes to, what I say no to, it's all part of the larger package of trying to be and stay healthy and live a life that is devoid of, of disease and, and sickness. Can you tell me, what's the kindest thing anybody's ever done for you? A last question that is going to bring us back to a point that I'm so glad you brought up. You talked about your hero hardship and highlight your experiences with depression, which uh, I've also had. 
And I'm going to ask you to write in your imagination, you're going to write a book of success, but I just want to know the three chapter titles. The book I'd love you to write, what are three chapter titles you would put in a book on successfully coping with depression? That's awesome. I mean, you know, because as you said, we need to be real uh, about this. People do see us in public. They read our materials, but we're just like anybody else. We have heroes, we have hardships, and we have highlights. I appreciate you being transparent. I think you got another book at some point or those three chapters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my mom said that. 
goes out for people who are struggling and living in depression, anxiety, journey is a battle. So if I can help, then yeah, I absolutely will. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. And I will make sure when I get this edited that you get a copy of it. Thank you so much, Fred. I appreciate the invitation. It's been an honor. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. My wife, Dr. Tina Opie, worked as a management consultant before earning her PhD at NYU Stern School of Business and becoming a tenured faculty member at Babson College. She has worked with the NFL, UBS, American Express, and Hulu to help their organizations do the hard work of becoming more inclusive. Tina Opie's consulting group can help your organization develop a strategy for elevating women and people from different racial ethnic backgrounds to leadership positions. Tina's work on inclusion, appearance policies, authenticity, and or shared sisterhood will make a positive difference in your organization. Contact Tina at Opie Consulting Group, LLC at gmail.com. That's Opie Consulting Group, LLC at gmail.com.